It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies. Okay. Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Dead. Walker. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker and film lover's perspective. I'm Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Andrzej Zulowski's Possession. Uh, our discussion will be spoiler heavy, and you may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. We're back after a, a short break. We'll see if we remember how to do this. This is the beginning of what we talked about last time being a transition into horror films or a transition into uh, a horror month, which we'll be doing in October. At the end of the last episode, we sort of set this up as an elevated horror slash art house horror kind of month to lean into and get us prepped and ready for October, where we go maybe a little bit more traditional horror. If I could just kind of talk about this, you know, October is like one of those times for me that I always just gravitate towards the horror, thriller, regardless of art house, traditional, however you want to look at it. I always gravitate towards those. I have a lot of friends on Letterboxd or other social media platforms that I constantly see them doing this like month-long Halloween horror marathon and i'm sitting there like one i wish i had that kind of time on my hands doing a yeah. different horror movie a day is just really exciting but i also generally burn out by like the end of the first week but yeah i i always get really excited about this time it's one of my favorite seasons we got like horror films we got football in full effect. Everybody's already sold out of their Oktoberfest beers because they released them at the end of July. It is probably my favorite time of the year, honestly, minus the football. I love the fall and something about Halloween that still gets me excited. I'm with you. I I don't have the time to do as much in terms of like watching movies and stuff as I'd like to. There was a time in my life where I could have done that, and I did occasionally, but it's just not possible anymore. And yeah, horror is unique because horror is the one genre of films that regardless of whether the movie's good or not, I just enjoy watching them. I mean, some of them can be kind of a slog, but a bad horror film is still a lot of fun for me. Maybe it's an excuse for me to finally watch some of these Blu-rays from Vinegar Syndrome or from Arrow that I've been just sitting on because I know they're not going to be great films or whatever. What were you going to say? I don't know about you, but around this time too, I always get this urge to go make a horror movie. I always just have that feeling like, son of a bitch, I should have been spending like the first half of the year developing this horror thriller idea that I've had and I've been kind of sitting on for a bit of time. Now's the time to go and make it. You know, unfortunately, it's just not in a state of, you know, maybe next year, but... um. You know, you, you kind of talked about here's the opportunity to kind of watch some of those Vinegar Syndrome, Arrow, you know, Shudder streaming options. 
Oh, yeah. Shudder. There's a ton of independent horror, like truly, truly independent horror that's like dropped out on Tubi. I actually kind of have fun with some of those, too. I'm watching it a little bit differently because it's more on par with something that somebody like us could potentially make. (laughs) You're working with more constraints. You're working with smaller budgets, fewer locations, maybe actors that aren't traditional actors. But it, it is just, you know, one of those things where Tubi gets so much, I think it's hard to really find an audience there. I think horror is probably the one, you know, like we've talked about, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful in any way, but it is easier for horror to find an audience and even to find distribution. There is a, a market for that versus making, a let's say, a, just a straight drama on the same sort of level, you know, there are companies out there seeking out these very small horror films. So bringing it back to Tubi, yeah, I think stuff gets lost on there. But I think it is the one genre that maybe can also find an audience on there as well. It's like a good thing and a bad thing. And I think we both love Tubi. Just we you kind of have to, I guess, sort of keep your expectations in check because there's a reason you're discovering it on Tubi versus discovering it somewhere else kind of thing. But that doesn't mean those films aren't worth watching or discovering. To kind of give a little bit more context or to kind of reveal a little bit of what really was happening behind the scenes is that we both were like, you know, it would be nice if we could talk about more horror films. And so the idea of September becoming like a transition month was a way to like kind of sneak in two more horror films, even though maybe they're not really horror films. I mean, I think there's debate for that. I mean... Do you think Possession is a horror film? I would say the short answer is yes, but it's also something more than that. I'll let you kind of speak to what the film's about, but a very short summarized version of this is it's a film about divorce and separation of this couple. And for me, horror movies work so much better when there is this additional element. There's more to it than just your traditional slasher killer or here's the haunted house and we need to investigate what this spirit is. So for me, like these types of horror movies or thrillers, they resonate better because at the core of their story, there is relatable and personal issues that are occurring here. I see like parallels with this film and something like Midsommar. I know that Midsommar is kind of like a film that people kind of love or hate, but that's kind of this like cultish thriller, arthouse horror film. But at its core, it's a breakup film. I kind of see this sort of the same way. And so this is actually pretty common. I think it's just to what degree films do it, but horror is commonly used as a way to tackle an issue that is happening in society or tackle a psychological thing that is affecting people. Obvious example is, you know, a way of conquering fears or something. But I think horror is one of those genres that can be used as the backdrop or it can be used as a metaphor for so many sort of real world ideas or issues. I think that's what's powerful about the genre in general. Not all horror films are that, obviously, and some do it to a greater extent. We can talk about at the end whether we think Possession is successful in 
using horror tropes or whatever to reach some greater truth or something. Zulawski is pretty outspoken about certain elements or the meaning of certain elements in the film, but he is very much in the camp of what it all means together is up for each viewer to come up with on their own. Each person has to decide what it means to them, but he'll admit that there is meaning to be taken out of it. And I think maybe we can have a discussion of whether it's successful in that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about possession? I've completed my job. That's why we want to rehire you. It's out of the question. And what would be the reason for your refusal? Family. Maybe all couples go through this. You have someone? Yes. Do you sleep with him? Yes. How long is it gonna last? I don't know. When I'm away from you, I think of you as an animal or a woman. And then I see you again, and all this disappears. You know, love isn't something you can just switch from channel to channel. Who is he? The story sort of begins with Mark, played by Sam Neill. He returns home to his wife and son after some time away. And when he gets home, I think he immediately recognizes that there's something wrong with his wife, Anna, who is played by Isabel Ejani. Anna asks for a divorce shortly after Mark discovers that she's actually been seeing another man. Mark attempts to mend their relationship, but Anna, I think, continuously disappears for long stretches of time. She's like always coming and going. And as a result, Mark takes sole responsibility of their son, but he's also trying to track Anna's movements and understand what's going on with her. And Anna's behavior becomes increasingly more bizarre. And then at a certain point, it's revealed, I guess, Anna has created and is sort of harboring this creature. She has this separate apartment in which she's been hiding this creature and, I guess, having sex with this creature. This creature is slowly evolving into something else. And then, you know, Mark hires like a private investigator to follow her and... That sort of leads to death for, for the investigator at the hands of Anna. Mark has to try to kind of cover up what his wife has been doing. I think we'll get into that later in terms of like why Mark does what he does. But I think that's enough to get started. But I know I know there's like so much I left out. Do you think there's important stuff that I left out? Yeah, there's two things I would actually bring up. The film culminates in this kind of like shootout with the police. But just before that, the creature's like final form is revealed. The creature's final form being Sam Neill's 
Mark. But earlier in the film, Mark has interactions and kind of eventually connects with their son, Bob's teacher, Helen. Helen is also played by Isabella Ajani and basically like a warmer, softer version of Anna, his wife, like a more calm, collected and controlled presence. You know, this is important to bring up because this film wrestles with so many different like themes and elements. And there's this like duality to these characters and sort of what they're looking for. So I, I kind of felt like it was important to connect that the creature eventually turns out to be a version that appears to be and looks like Sam Neill's Mark. And the real Mark had been kind of having relations with an alternate version of Anna. I think that's worth noting with this. One of the main sort of ideas of the film or concepts of the film or themes of the film is divorce and separation. And there's obviously a lot more going on, but one of the biggest discussions is what is the meaning of the doppelgangers? I think it's another film that it can mean many different things. And I'll certainly give my interpretation. I don't know if my interpretation really makes any sense. We'll get there. I did want to just give a little information to sort of establish the environment in which this film was conceived. So in 1978, Polish authorities halted the production of On the Silver Globe, the film that Zulowski was directing in Poland. And as a result of that, he left Poland and began making films in other countries, mainly France. This experience resulted in, in him leaving Poland. And then he was also around the same time, experienced a very painful divorce from his wife, actress Mel Gorzada Bronick. In 1976, they separated. And of course, he'll say that a lot of the sort of moments between Mark and Anna early in the film are autobiographical. The result of these two things in just a couple of years, I think, left him with this feeling that his life, creatively, professionally, and personally, was sort of falling apart. And that's sort of how this film came about. And he will deny that this film is therapy. He admits that there is autobiographical elements in the film, but he sort of denies that it's a form of therapy, whether you believe that or not. So I think that's important to understand. I mean, I think there is a lot of, for lack of a better way of describing it, there's like a lot of raw energy in the film, and it feels like almost like it's being made by a person sort of on the edge. And I think this sort of stuff is one of the reasons why it feels that way. Do you have anything else you want to add about the production? I wouldn't call it a major point of the film because it just has to do with location. But, you know, you can tell that there's this element where the filmmaker feels kind of without a home because of it being set in West Berlin and several shots of the film. It's right at the border between East and West. And within the history and context of what happened in Germany and that division, again, while maybe not a significant element to the film, you can tell that the filmmaker had some connection to that. And I think that we've talked about this several times, but when you have a filmmaker who is having certain personal experiences and when you can bring something personal and we put that into our art, I think it just enhances it. Yeah, I obviously agree with that. I think during our After Sun 
episode. We were looking at letterboxed reviews of the film. This person who wrote this review just was not interested in witnessing the director's therapy session. I felt that like that was strange. And it, it's not just strange because I aspire to make personal films. It was strange because as a film lover and as a fan of films that are unique, you know, I don't want everything to be carbon copies of everything else. I think films should be therapy for the makers of those films. I, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think films should be personal. And, and if a filmmaker is using film to make sense of something or just to get something out there to leave them in a better place. But I don't think that's a bad thing as an artist. I think that's what art should be. So yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it's complicated because I do notice a lot of contradictions in the things that Zulawski says. And I think that's natural when talking about the things you make. I think that there's a difference between being vulnerable with the art that we're creating and being vulnerable enough to put ourselves into our art or our film, music, whatever it may be. But then there's a different level of vulnerability to actually like talk about something or to have to sort of answer to it after somebody's seen your work. And again, I don't want to sit here and pretend we had some like John Malkovich tunnel into the director's mind in this case or or other films but one of the things that as we've continued to do this podcast the films i feel like that have resonated with us and that we've connected to feel like there's like some personal meanings personal matters within them that the director brought and i don't think that it always needs to be so overt when the director is putting themselves out there that, okay, well, now they need to also talk about it. I think sometimes the art speaks for itself and what we glean, what we're able to kind of look into the director's soul a little bit and they're sharing that vulnerability with what we see on screen is actually more powerful than what they're communicating to us and by explaining things. And it was uh, one time, I think, in my lifetime, <laughs> I said almost nothing. Usually you explain, you talk. How can you explain something which you cannot explain yourself? Impossible. I just want to touch a, a little bit on the history of Possession. It premiered at the 34th Cannes Film Festival in 1981. In the 1980s, it was actually banned in the UK as part of their Video Nasties movement. It had a, I guess I'd call it a little bit of a delay finding some of its footing. Yeah, and it wasn't, from what I understand, wasn't necessarily financially successful, especially in the U.S. Zulowski had mentioned that the producer wanted him to shoot in English because this was going to be a way for them to potentially make more money off the film. They thought it would perform better if it was an English language film. And so he obviously agreed to do that to get the money that I guess didn't quite work. I, I think there's, especially with this film, more obstacles than just a language barrier. Obviously gained somewhat of a cult following recent years, but was never, you know, sort of a huge hit. Did you mention that Ajani won Best Actress at Cannes? I didn't. I'm sure we'll mention performances, specifically Sam Neill and Isabel Ajani. She won at Cannes, and it's certainly an interesting performance. 
how do you want to handle this? <laughs> I think I'm prepared to maybe just start dissecting some of these ideas and, and maybe we can talk about what they mean to us. It's like like you build a house and, and you have this 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 basement or this ground floor. This is the ground floor, which is the reality of a marriage breaking up. And then you need you need a second floor. You you need something above in order to transpose the story to to say that th this means something and it's it's the eternal story of the 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 uh, the fables you 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 tell your children they have a morality they have they have a witch they have a devil they have something which is out of the ordinary the first part of the film establishes a kind of ordinary situation and then I hope it goes the, the, the one step above, one level above this thing in order to give you a mythic, mythic dimension uh, to, to what's going on. So now this is what's interesting about the story is that on a technique level, it's far from this ordinary domestic drama. There's a tone and a feel created by the way things are shot, the way things are blocked, the performances that do make it sort of otherworldly. And we'll get into that a little bit later, I think. Even with that, the first part of the story is sort of this domestic drama about a couple breaking up. And then at a certain point, these surreal elements start to come into play and these horror elements and, and creatures and things sort of come in and it becomes something else. Now he's mentioned that, and I already had talked about this, that that first part, a lot of that is very personal to him. That is stuff that is directly inspired by his own divorce. You know, he also talked about, I think the quote he said was this idea of taking a soap opera and taking it to a place that doesn't exist. And so I think leading into what I think the film is ultimately about, which is disconnect between two people, divorce, a separation, I think that is what the film is ultimately about. There are other possibilities or other things also sort of at play here. So there is the couple that is separating, but then there's also a filmmaker who is recently separated from his country. And then there's also this idea of, you know, he wanted to shoot it in Berlin, Berlin, a city divided, a city that was once one is now divided in two. So a city that is separated. And then also, you know, him coming from a country that was under communist rule with the Cold War and the Iron Curtain and all that kind of stuff, this idea of Europe also being divided or separated. There is a possibility to look at this as a political film. There is the possibility to look at it from another angle other than about a relationship between a man and a woman. But what speaks to me and what I ultimately take away from the film is that this is a way of expressing the, the trauma that comes with divorce. Evil for us in the communist countries were, had a very material face. It, uh, you could pinpoint it. You could say, oh, this is evil. This system is evil. This, uh, the, this whole, uh, the layers of, of, of uh, fiction, lying, uh, uh, this ideology which is the contrary of it, 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 uh, its realization, which is this is this is evil. Uh, but then, how come that it visits? 
this young woman who's not evil? Does it visit us all? Do we nurture it in, in us? Uh, or is it from outside and plunging into us and, and, and changing us? That could be a question. And <clears throat> when I wrote the script, I, I thought that I really would love to make the film uh, the closest possible to this this uh, uh, this part of the world in which the film was invented, which is the, the communist side of, of the world, which and Berlin se seemed really the right place, being surrounded by this wall and this communist empire all around. Uh, to start the film with the wall and the crosses where people were killed, to have this entrenched uh, psychology of people surrounded by evil, and finally, evil warms up into their universe. Uh, it's a political statement. Uh, I wasn't shooting the beautiful uh, TV tower of East Berlin, I was shooting the wall. And, uh, and uh, for reasons not of exotic background, but for reasons of of a profound necessity for this story to unravel. I would agree with you, and I think that that's actually the part of the film that I found most interesting and that I was able to kind of connect with was the relationship element, the divorce, the separation. But what we have here is a filmmaker who did an excellent job making everything in the film about some sort of division, some sort of like separation. You know, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but having it being set in Berlin, it speaks to everything that you just highlighted with the division when a marriage is ending or like a separation like this, just like Germany, there is this lack of wholeness. You know, I know I know we're not there yet, and we'll talk about like the filmmaking techniques, but the first time I, I watched this, I backed it up and in the moment, I don't think it really connected or resonated with me. I found it just like a confusing directorial decision. But then in hindsight, and like basically the first time we see Mark and Anna interact, Mark gets out of a cab and, you know, he does this awkward thing where he like, you know, sits down his bags and then he picks him up. You can't just say you don't know. That's what you said on the phone. When will you know? I don't know. Do you want me to spend the night somewhere else? In that moment, the first time watching it, I'm like, was this a goof? What is this? But as the scene progresses and you kind of understand what's happening here, it does kind of speak to Mark's situation where he's almost homeless. Like he's uncertain of his place. And I, I thought that was just a very subtle moment that admittedly I didn't get at first, but then upon reviewing it and kind of like really thinking about it, it's like, this makes a lot of sense. We've talked about like introducing your characters and how we introduce characters. And I kind of found this to be just a, a unique way of doing it that communicated a lot more than what you first expect. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that you describe this film as subtle in a way. I don't think subtle's the right word. And and I would say that that's probably the most subtle moment that we get in this entire film. We'll talk about my critiques of the film as we progress. And it's interesting that we went from Charlie Kaufman's lack of subtlety to possession. This is a conversation we're going to have to, at some point, have, and I'm trying to think of when the best time to have it is. How sort of frustrated I was with Synecdoche, New York, and how throughout this entire podcast I've expressed I like a certain style of acting. I like a certain style of filmmaking. To just simplify it for people listening, I always lean on the side of I like subtlety. This film is the exact opposite of that. Yet, I do like this film. I don't love this film. I have issues with this film, but I do like it. But it is interesting that I critiqued our last film for a lack of subtlety. And in this episode, it's not going to be a critique of mine. I'll have a justification for that. Whether you think that justification is valid, we'll, we'll find out. Was that why you were laughing is because like I actually used the word subtle when it came to this film? Yeah, I wonder if anybody ever used possession and subtle in the same sentence ever. Yeah, that's <laughs> it is really just that moment. Nothing else about the film. It was just one of those interesting direction moments that ties into the story and the and the theme so well. New friend! Oh, check. Yes, check, 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 check! Why did you leave last night? But you said you went to France. Why are you nagging me? Can't you just let me pay? Christ, you're a perfect piece of you. never came back. It's Bob. He's my son, too. Don't try to tell me that you care about him all that much. He didn't stop you from breaking us up. I really struggled with it because I felt like, especially early on, it just feels so one note. Once the film gets going, you know, it starts to draw me in a little bit more. But it just feels felt so loud and assaultive, especially like early on. I'm going to be honest with you, there's a lot that didn't work here. I also kind of want to acknowledge there are good elements in the early stages of the film. There's like this disjointed element of like time passage that I think work really well. You know, it's done in this like jarring way, but it just felt so heavy handed and just like so one note for so much of it that I kind of found myself sort of disconnected from it. Was there a certain point where you, because you said you came a little bit more engrossed or maybe just a little bit more interested at a certain point, do you know what point that happened for you? So I, I don't think it was until Anna leaves and goes to this alternate apartment that she's staying in that I'm like, okay, we're kind of getting somewhere. Do you feel like that continues until the end of the film, or does the film at some point lose you again, out of curiosity? I would say at that point, my interest was peaked, so I was more interested and in, into it at that point. Well, the reason I ask is because I have maybe the opposite, the opposite thing. <laughs> so I like the beginning of the film, and there is a moment in the film where I start to lose interest in what's happening. It may be the moment where Mark goes to that second apartment. This is after Heinrich calls him and, you know, Heinrich has been injured and he calls Mark and he's like, she's killing people there. And he's like, you know, stay put, I'm coming. It's at roughly around that point that I start to lose interest in the film. It's when it becomes almost about Mark 
covering for Anna or hiding evidence for Anna, then it really loses me when it becomes like, I don't know, what's a good way to say this? Because I don't think it becomes an action film, but there is a moment where he's jumping out of cars. He's shooting at cops. He's riding the motorcycle and he's, you know, slides and that stuff just loses me. I have no interest in any of that. I liked the the moments between the two characters or the moments with Anna by herself in which she's walking through the subway or, you know, she's at the apartment. That's the stuff that has me interested. It's almost maybe when the plot kicks in, not that it's a, a tightly plotted film or anything even at the end, but that somehow loses me. If I could kind of clarify something. I said my interest is peaked, but maybe that's not the best way to put it. I think that's when maybe I feel like the film is demanding more attention. Sure. I'm not actually surprised to hear that that like second half of the film or really what kind of turns out to be like the third act is where you lose interest because I think this is an oversimplification of it, but I feel like that's where the film comes off the rails. I think it does turn into this movie that you're not necessarily expecting or not the film that the first one and a half, two acts really were. I get that. To maybe oversimplify it, I also really struggled within that first half or so of the film with just how loud and aggressive the scenes are, especially between Mark and Anna. I was sort of internally begging for quiet moments between them. And I understand maybe that's not how it works. That's not how divorce situations may go. But at the same time, I just felt like it was a constant assault. I want to circle back around to that, but I want to clarify, I guess, that final act, if you want to think of it that way, how I feel about that. Zulowski said there were elements of the script that he kind of removed at certain points for various reasons, but he acknowledges that removing them was good because it simplified the story. It simplified things. It removed confusion and all that kind of stuff. I think what I found at the end is that the film feels full of complications that if removed would have simplified the story, would have benefited the story. All this stuff about Sam Neill's character, Mark, being some sort of spy, you know, someone who had spent some time in the Eastern Bloc and then has now returned home to the West. And this idea of the guy with the pink socks, that's the stuff that for me, I think just muddies the waters. He was asked, why make Sam Neill sort of like, quote unquote, spy? And Zulowski's response was, you know, it just made sense to me as someone coming from this communist country and I'm living in this area that is politically very volatile, maybe didn't make sense to people elsewhere in the world. But for me, it just made sense. And so those feel like elements that if you want to read the film as being political, if you want to read the film as being about communism in some way, like the themes of a Europe divided or a, or a city like Berlin divided, and it's about this time in Europe, those elements maybe make sense. 
But those aren't the elements that I think the movie is really about for me personally. If you're going to view the film a different way, those elements are maybe beneficial to the story. But the way I view the film, those elements just cause confusion. When I first sat down to watch it, kind of with the understanding that Mark is the spy and without more context to it, I found it odd and kind of perplexing. Honestly, we could have never known what job he held, and I don't think it necessarily hurts the film. He mentioned that if he was going to shoot this film in America, he would shoot it in like Detroit or something, and he would be like a car mechanic. And this car mechanic would come home and discover his wife is having sex with an octopus. If he was shooting in America, the job would be something completely different. So initially, it didn't make sense to me that he was a spy. But if you think about like a spy and like they basically can't be themselves, they have to be somebody else. I I actually think that that does work with some of the elements of the film, because I feel like Anna's whole issue and why Anna has these relationships outside of their marriage is because her husband's not home, Mark isn't around, and maybe it's a situation where she doesn't even have a sense of who Mark is. You think about what a spy is and who a spy might be, there is this fictitious element of that individual. Initially, I wrestle with the fact that he's a spy, but you know, if you kind of peel back a layer, there is something about it that makes sense to me in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, I get your point with being a spy. Maybe there comes someone being very secretive and there is this question of identity. But I mean, what if it was just someone who traveled for work a lot and just wasn't present? What's interesting is we don't really know why Anna is unhappy in this relationship. I think it's intentional. He's kind of expressed that like it wasn't about understanding why. I think that this is one of the things that does interest me about this film is at the end, we see the creature in its final form and it being Mark, just like a a different version of him for whatever it is. And we don't know. I think that's one of the fascinating things is, is actually not knowing, not truly understanding of what caused this rift. What is the core of this problem? I can gather and glean that there's things that Mark does that Anna's unhappy with and that Anna does that Mark's unhappy with. So the creature to Anna is this perfect version of Mark. It is everything that she doesn't get in Mark, and it's his apex version. So whatever that is, we don't know as an audience. And I honestly don't think that it matters. At least it doesn't matter to me. And I think that when it comes to Mark's situation and Mark's interactions with Helen, Bob's teacher, it's very similar where this is a more pure version of Anna. This whole conversation started with discussing the subtlety or lack of subtlety of the film or like the one noteness. You know, we start the film at a point where the relationship is already at this point of no return. You know, she wants something different. She's unhappy. She was having an affair with Heinrich. Obviously, Heinrich isn't the answer for her. She's already at a point where this relationship is over when we start the film. That's why I feel like everything is sort of one note, because it's all about just reacting 
to the end. From Mark's perspective, it's your wife saying, I want a divorce. From her perspective, it's like your husband maybe not accepting your wishes, your desires, or even after you've done this, nothing's really changing. It's about reacting to that. So all of this very expressive, very sort of over-the-top filmmaking that is in all of these different sort of elements and categories, you know, the blocking, it's the, the camera movement, it's the performances for sure, it's the music at times, this is just this outward expression of inner turmoil. It's over the top, but it represents this sort of swirl and mess of emotions that we would normally hold inside, sort of being projected into reality, projected onto the screen. And it's like you're seeing inside someone's head, like the cafe scene. First of all, the blocking is very, we'll get to blocking in camera later, but the way that things are blocked very unnaturally to create that disconnect. And then the way he just swipes stuff off the table and then plowing through tables and chairs, like running after her. I don't view that as, and this is where people will be like, okay, depending on how you feel about this film, someone's going to say, okay, you're crazy. This is a weird interpretation of this movie, potentially. I don't view that stuff as literal. I view it as we're seeing someone's internal life projected into the external. And that only happens when your filmmaker is really sort of on the edge, I think. It just feels like this is a filmmaking approach that is like a, a filmmaker just putting everything on the table, putting everything out there. The other moment I think of is the rocking chair scene. Sam Neill's waiting for her to come home and he's rocking. There's weird stuff that happens in this film. The most unsettling scene or shot in the entire film, I would say, is the rocking chair. Imagine this guy who's very angry with his wife. His wife has left him for another man. Clearly, he was on some bender or something, and he finally comes home and discovers that his son was basically completely abandoned because she was with this other guy. And so there's this seething anger. And the filmmaker's like, okay, I want to express that anger visually. I think Zulawski is a visual filmmaker. I think he said doing actions, those types of things, that's what cinema is. Talking is radio or something. I think those are the words he used. He wants to express that anger visually to the audience. The way he expresses that internal anger is through this aggressive over-the-top rocking in this rocking chair. Does that mean that Mark is literally doing that? Or is that just internal emotions being visualized by a filmmaker? People might say I'm really stretching here to say that it's all just internal emotions visualized and it's not to be taken literally. I imagine if we suddenly switched to Anna's perspective that we would see Sam Neill just sitting there stationary in that rocking chair. The aggressive rocking is just the representation of his emotions and is only present in the scenes that are from Mark's perspective. The reason I view it that way is because it is so bizarre. It is so off kilter and unnatural. It's not, this is an over the top performance. Everything is just a little off. I understand and respect that perspective. 
I think I do read it a little bit more literal, though. I think about a situation like that, I could see somebody legitimately and literally kind of going through this and this actually being how this person's living. In that rocking chair scene, Sam Neill's character is, he looks tired, he looks worn out, he looks like he hasn't slept in days. While there's questions of why there's the infidelity and why they're in this state, Mark still loves Anna. It does feel like in that situation, this is what I could see real people doing and and how real people would react to the circumstance. Maybe if I were to go back and rewatch it and think about it in terms of it not being literal, maybe I do view it differently. I have a question. So this quote unquote miscarriage in the subway and the creature that is created and is evolving in the apartment, are those things literal? Those things just exist and happen as depicted? Or are those something else being expressed visually? from your perspective. It is revealed that Anna has been basically having a relationship of a sexual nature with this creature. There's a, I would call it borderline gratuitous sex scene between Anna and the octopus. That's the creature that eventually evolves into this other version of Mark that we've talked about. Your question was, is this something real or is it a metaphor for something else? This is where, you know, maybe our listeners will say, well, you can't have it both ways. But I I do feel like that creature is a little bit more metaphorical. I think that kind of represents this impure element that Anna is drawn to. I think it kind of stands for the infidelity, this element of lust and desire. Because when we hear about the creature or when there's been like interaction about the creature, she's either having sex with it or there's discussion about how it made love to her all night. I think that is metaphorical. Now, you also touched on, in a film with so many things that are heavy-handed and maybe a touch over-the-top, the scene that I think probably takes the award for most over-the-top scene in this entire movie is this scene that happens on the subway where Anna has a miscarriage, and it is blood and pus. I think that there is something metaphorical but also literal to this. I do feel like somewhere along the way, there may have been this terrible miscarriage that Anna had, whether it be a child that she would have had with Mark, I I truly believe it probably was from another lover. And this is the anguish and torturous nature of what she went through, kind of depicted in this scene, the pain, the agony that she experienced through that in a physical, literal manner, but also in an emotional and psychological fashion as well. So this is where I differ on this. I think of the creature and the miscarriage as visual representations of emotions or internal experiences. From my perspective, they don't represent an idea. They're not metaphors or representations of an idea or a concept or a theme. They're representations of emotions that the characters are feeling. I think it's all about trauma and pain. I think that can be applied to everything else in the film. It's about representing emotions, representing the pain of divorce 
or the pain of being left for someone else. It's all just about visualizing that pain, that trauma. And so that's how I make the connection between the two. That's how I make a connection between a tentacled creature and Sam Neill in a rocking chair. Now, whether that's justified, whether people think I'm making too big of a leap, that may be possible, but that's the way I see it. I think I'm going to just challenge you a little bit on this one, because if that's what you feel is being represented here, help me understand like why these are the things happening to Anna then, when Anna is the one who has been unfaithful who has, you know, by all accounts, minus acts of violence against Anna, he is generally depicted as somebody who cares for her. So I think that's where I, I kind of struggle with your understanding, and I, I just kind of hope to sort of get a better understanding from you. Whether you're the person who cheated or whether you're the person being cheated on, I think there's pain on both sides. I think that stems from being unhappy in your relationship or being, you know, deeply unhappy in general. I mean, that's what I think it is. You know, is Anna the one who's guilty of doing these things to hurt their relationship or end their relationship? Yeah, but she's doing so because of her own unhappiness. And so there is pain being expressed. This film comes from a very simple vision. We are all unhappy. And we don't deserve it. We, we would love to, to see things around us, in us, be uh, otherwise than, than they are. And we don't, we don't know how to deal with that, how to do it. I don't think basically we are uh, <laughs> um, bad people, bad persons. We just don't know. You know, this is how I differ from you, is that I do get why you view it this way and why other people view it this way, but I don't think the, the Mark doppelganger represents the perfect Mark. I think it represents essentially a cycle or a pattern of outcomes. She leaves Mark because she's unhappy. She wants to find happiness. So, you know, maybe she starts to have an affair with Heinrich and she quickly realizes Heinrich isn't the answer. She finally leaves both of them. I'm going to end this relationship with Heinrich, but I'm also going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my husband to go find what will truly make me happy. But she's still carrying around the, the pain, the trauma, everything that caused her to do this in the first place. And without, you know, sort of magically removing all that, that's just going to create a similar situation to Mark. When the creature takes on Mark's appearance, she's just fallen into this pattern of repeating what happened with Mark. We don't know Mark and Anna's story before the film starts, but whatever that is, however she got to this place where she wants out, without major change, she's just going to end up in that place again with someone else. So in a way, you could say the doppelganger represents what trauma created, but the creature itself just is a representation of that trauma or that pain. See, that makes sense to me, and that's sort of how I interpreted the actual end of the film in the last few minutes of it, where Mark and Anna's son, Bob, is with Helen, his teacher, and I can't remember if it's like a knock on the door or there's like a ring of the door. Bell. Don't open! Please don't open! Don't open it! Don't open! Don't open it! Don't open! Don't open! Don't open. Don't open. Don't open. Don't open. 
Bob is like shouting and, and screaming not to open the door. I interpret it as basically like a continuation of this vicious cycle, and Bob would rather go and drown himself than continue to be a part of it. We have the doppelganger creature Mark going to Helen's apartment, and it does kind of feel like while they're basically like the doppelgangers of the characters, it did feel like these two people continuously going back to each other, even in a toxic situation where, you know, maybe they should be and Bob's trying to break the cycle a little bit. I guess if I could just like add one more thing here. We talk a lot about how the film's about like this breakup and this divorce, but I also feel like there's this element of codependency. You have Anna who's coming and going, and she basically can't just stay away. It's a situation where she can't just not be near Mark. And you have Mark who he has these like violent fits of rage against Anna on a few different occasions, but he is just stuck kind of waiting for her and, and trying. And, you know, he kind of turns a blind eye to certain situations. Also, the extent that he would go to cover for her later on in the film. I want to say I may have used the term like he loves her to the point that he would do these things. I don't know that necessarily that's the right word for it. I think it's like a codependent element. Yeah, I agree with you. The idea of Helen, Anna's double. I do think Helen represents, similar to what you were saying, the good and the pure parts of Anna. I wouldn't say like maybe like the perfect partner or whatever, but those are the things I think that maybe Anna was at one point. She resembles or represents the person that Mark initially fell in love with. So there's this idea that they're both teachers. Helen is tender and caring, and Anna as the ballet teacher is, I don't know, tough and demanding. I do think that that's the result of someone becoming, you know, maybe a little bit bitter or hardened. And you can see maybe the transition from, you know, one to the other. If you use your imagination, obviously it's not shown. So in a way, like, I think it's being depicted that Mark has a choice. He could start fresh with someone and Helen represents that. Helen represents what he could potentially have or fall in love with. But there is something, whatever it is, that keeps him connected to Anna. Whether that's love, whether that's like a codependency. I think there's an element of like he's trying to understand her, trying to understand why she's doing the things she's doing. And so like maybe that's an element of curiosity or maybe that is love and you're just trying to really know the person that you love. But because he, whatever it is that he has, he follows her into this madness, which ultimately destroys him as well. And I think codependency is a pretty good way of looking at it. She loves something that she created. She loves something that she has... Uh, who loves her in the strangest, aberrant way, but loves her in the way she wants to be loved. And I think that is a metaphor so interesting, that our loneliness can create something that nurtures our love. And I think that's what, that's what we, I, I, I had hoped for anyway. I had hoped to see that. I had hoped wanted that. That somehow in our most despairing, abject, pained loneliness, somewhere, somehow, is a creation of something that comforts us. And I, I think that was part of what I understood about making that film. 
I think it's interesting that the two people who worked together on the script can have, not dramatically, but slightly different perspectives on what a major element of this film means. That's certainly interesting. And there is certainly an element of Zulovsky not, he gives the impression that he doesn't entirely know what certain things mean sometimes. It's about the exploration. Sometimes even he as a filmmaker doesn't know. And I don't know if that's always accurate because from what I understand is a very meticulous planner and maybe part of it is just him not wanting to talk about it. You touched on the Helen slash Anna sort of like duality between those two. It's such a minute thing, but I'm always interested in like costuming and clothing and and use of color. I really appreciated Anna's constantly in like blue or darker tones and even as the film progresses you notice like the shade of the blue almost seems to change you kind of juxtapose that against helen she's wearing white so there's this purity this almost like this idealistic version of who she is to mark and i I, you know that that's just like directing like filmmaking items that I look for and maybe I'm just like super nerdy about this but I always like when the wardrobe or something else is communicating about the characters beyond just what they're saying. Blue is the color of separation of despair of loneliness and it goes from Goethe to to the Iranian Sufis uh, to the to the Japanese theories, but I don't care about theories. Berlin is a is a town in which many things are blue, or many things are yellow, and this blue yellow contrast is the contrast between the two apartments uh, the wife inhabits in the film. She lives in a blue one in which there's separation. And she lives in a yellow one in which she recreates something which is for her like hope and future and whatever that is. Uh, look, even the phone book is yellow. The, the, the subway is yellow and blue. So, so it's, uh, it came naturally looking at the town, looking at the, the place we were shooting and, and the, this universal gray which comes, uh, which comes upon the two main colors which, which sticks the color together. It makes the film not fragmented, not broken by the middle. He frequently talked about not caring about theory, color theory. He was asked about why certain things were shot certain ways, and he mentioned, oh, there's this theory. I don't really care about theory. I mentioned earlier, he seems to contradict himself at times. He has expressed multiple times, like, oh, I don't care about theory, but he's incorporating these sort of quote-unquote theories into his filmmaking. I think what he means maybe is that it's something that has to feel right for the film and for the story. And it's not all about just what a textbook says you need to do. It also needs to feel natural and feel right for the story. And sometimes theory, there's a reason it became a theory. Sometimes theory can just feel right. This is a film that I see so much of the director having put themselves into it. I guess it's not surprising to me that there is like this contradictory nature to the director when there is so many things within this film, within the characters of Possession that feel contradictory, contradictory to themselves, contradictory to their situations, contradictory to the environment that they're in. I'm unable to do that. Would you be unable for a long time? 
I hope not. Aren't you allowing feelings to prevent you from answering your own questions? Exactly why I advise you to hire my successor. Good. Any questions? As we kind of move into like technique and the filmmaking element, there was something as I was first watching this movie, and I, I guess I was sort of taken aback by you liking the film because so much of like what happens early on in the film feels like filmmaking decisions that you generally don't care for. There are certain elements of early scenes where in the back of my mind, I'm thinking Justin generally would say that this is overshot or too much movement in this, that it almost becomes a distraction. I'll talk about camera movement first. I'll acknowledge there can be moments where camera movement is distracting, like you said. But most of the time, my issue with camera movement is the fact that it's not motivated. Maybe the motivation isn't always obvious or isn't initially obvious to a viewer. But I think you can feel when it's motivated and when it's not motivated, whether you understand what the motivation is right away or not. Or I also believe in the idea of contrast. Which is interesting because, you know, you're saying this film at the beginning is very one note and I'll acknowledge that is true. There is just a lot of movement. Why does it not bother me so much in this film? It's a good question. I think part of it is that I think the camera movement is motivated. The filmmakers are not just moving the camera to move the camera. I think they have a reason for moving it. For me, it is so much about the camera movement is so expressive. I think it is about expressing, and this goes back to the way I interpret the film, but it's expressing the emotions inside a character. It's expressing the thought patterns, the way people think and the transition from one thought to the next. Or if it's like a burst of anger, frustration, the sudden sort of, it's not the quickest movement that I've ever seen, but it is pretty quick. It's not like we're doing subtle push-ins or something. The camera's kind of flying by. And I think that's what's motivating these decisions. Would I ever make a film like this? Absolutely not. <laughs> this isn't a film that I have any interest in making myself. Is this film ever going to be in my top 50 favorite films? Top 100? No, it's not. But I see a filmmaker using the tools available to him, and he's using them to express something visually. I will agree and concede the point to an extent, because during like the argument sequences, that makes a lot of sense. And we'll talk about blocking in a moment, because one of the things I actually really loved about this film is the way that it is blocked. Let's talk just for a moment. I'm going to be honest. Please do. I absolutely hated the scene in general. I think maybe that feeds into why I maybe hated the way that this was shot. I kind of started this by discussing the scene being a little overshot. The biggest, most egregious scene where I think that this occurs is the whole like debrief scene with Sam Neill's character and his like superiors. You mean, did I feel fear? No, because that would have prevented me answering all your questions. How many vials did he take with him? Two. What procedure have you devised for contacting him again? It's all in my report. Yeah, again, I don't like that scene because... It serves no purpose. 
unless you're looking at this as like a political film in some way, those are the scenes that I feel like distract from the relationship. I don't view it as a political film. I think that there are political elements and there's like the backdrop. That's not how I view the film. I think that that scene serves no purpose other than to set up the man with the pink socks at the end of the film. Now that aside, I think it is actually the worst shot scene in the entire film. The continuous 360 degree rotate around this group. And maybe I'm just more critical of the way that that scene is shot because I'm checked out of that scene as soon as we're in it. And I don't care about what's actually happening in that scene versus elsewhere. While, while I think that we have had some disagreements about certain meanings within this film, I think overall we do agree that the film is a about and and the things that we find interesting is the relationship in these two people. So I'm probably being extra critical of this, but I just hate everything about this scene. I also hate how it's lit. It's just for for being what it is, it feels just too bright and too not washed out, but just a little too punchy. I felt like this is a scene where if it is about this like spy espionage political element, this should be maybe lit a little bit darker, or there should be some other decisions made as far as the look of this scene. I'm not going to make an argument for the lighting being good, but I think the the motivation behind it is to subvert tropes or expectations. This idea of this espionage scene, the thing that would happen in secret in a back alley or something is in this white room with wall-to-wall windows, very brightly lit, intentionally to be the exact opposite of what maybe we associate with the concept of uh, spies and... But I don't know. I get that. I could see that. At the end of the day, it's still not interesting. No, and I agree with that. So you expressed that it was overshot. I just want to clarify something. When you say overshot, you're not saying there's all this coverage or too many angles. You just mean it's the camera's too busy in the scene? Yes. From my perspective, because, you know, you, you touched on like motivated camera movement. I don't see motivation here other than I'm just doing this kind of stylistic move. Okay, so I'm going to read a quote. And so to set sort of the stage for this, I mean, the two types of movements that we kind of see in this film, the two pieces of equipment that we see utilized in this film is we have either a handheld camera or we have dolly track. The dolly track is most of the time, if not always, just straight lateral movement. We see it a lot of the time, characters entering a building and we'll just move past the building or they're walking into a room and it moves past or something like that. So those are the two types of movement. I'm going to read a quote from Andrei Yorachevich. He is the camera operator on the film and who's worked with Zulowski several times. When shooting with wide-angle lenses within the frame, you need to gather all the elements that are important and eliminate all those that are not important because the wide-angle lens renders everything important. So the actor becomes as important as four books somewhere in the background. A cup steams in the background, the steam moving. Already it becomes meaningful. So the organization of such shots needs great caution from the director as well as the camera operator. Composing such wide-angle shots is therefore more difficult than it looks. Our handheld camera is a camera that is telling a story, not a camera showing how a film is being made. The main difference between what young people are doing now and what we wanted to achieve back then is that the camera wasn't supposed to shake. It wasn't supposed to move and say, here I am, I'm the camera, so let's shake a bit. 
the film is telling a certain story, so the camera should also tell that story. I think I see that for the most part in this film. From my perspective, I see a lot of movement. And again, I'm not someone who necessarily likes movement. I do think I see intention behind the movement. That being said, the scene you just described is an interesting one because I don't know if I know what's motivating this 360 track around our characters as they have this conversation. I can make the argument that this camera move is expressive of some emotional state when we're talking about something that the character is emotionally invested in. You know, his relationship with his son, his relationship with his wife, his anger towards Heinrich. You know, these are things that he has an emotional reaction to. But now he's talking to people he works for about this vague, opaque mission and this guy in pink socks, and they hand him a briefcase full of money. Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't know what necessarily is the sort of emotional connection he has with this scene. In that case, I can't make the argument that that camera move is expressing an emotional state like I have been this entire time. Yeah, that's honestly one of my biggest problems with this. Now, I'm going to just play devil's advocate against myself for a moment, though. I could see somebody countering this or like pushing back on this perspective by saying, well, it's shot this way because from Mark's perspective, he's trying to get home. He's trying to get back to what's important. So you shoot it in a way such as this, where it's that continuous movement. We're just trying to get in and out of the scene to an extent. I could see that as an argument, but I don't think it changes my perspective. Let's talk about a scene that we actually both really like, I would say, that cafe or restaurant scene. I talked about like blocking as being something I really enjoy within this film. Uh, this is like one of the first moments where I'm like, okay, they're doing something really interesting with the blocking and the way it's shot. Mark is sitting at this table. Anna walks in. The traditional way of doing this would be Anna sits down across from Mark. The film subverts expectations, and instead of sitting across from Mark, Anna sits next to Mark, almost at like a corner. Would 800 a month for Bob be enough? I suppose. Will you move in with him or keep the apartment? I'll keep it if you allow me to. I've decided not to see Bob. At all? At all. So Justin, I know that you appreciated this sequence for any number of reasons. Your thoughts on the way that this was blocked and the decisions made here. This whole sequence is honestly probably my favorite in the film, even when we get to the more ridiculous moments of it. But yeah, that start, it's an untraditional blocking decision, but it is all about conveying the central idea that there is a disconnect between these two people. If we didn't know any better, it feels like two strangers. It feels like a situation in which it's like the setup for two strangers meeting for the first time and having an interaction. They're sitting at 
different tables next to each other, close enough to each other where they could interact or something. But they're specifically there to see each other. And so we're selling this idea of disconnect, and it's happening through multiple elements in the frame. It's the fact that they're facing opposite directions. It's the fact that there is this corner between them, and this corner is covered in mirrors. So we have this physical sort of divide in the frame that separates them as well. And then as we cut from that wide to like close-ups of the two actors, we now have them still facing in opposite directions, but now we're using focus as well as a way to disconnect the characters. You have a close-up of your main focus, and then in the background, you have the character kind of looking off screen out of focus. So I just think every decision in this, you know, we're talking specifically about the blocking, I guess, but every decision is to convey this idea of disconnect. And it's a simple blocking choice in terms of they don't move around a lot at this point, but it's untraditional and it really works. But this is what's interesting too, is like, if you're going for naturalism, it doesn't maybe make the most sense. I mean, someone could view it as just like, okay, here's a filmmaker favoring an effect over a realistic, natural scenario. But I like to view it as not a filmmaker favoring that, but a filmmaker visually representing it. It's a great piece of blocking. And I bring it up because, again, you touched on it. It's a decision that you generally don't see, but it does go to communicate. And and as critical as I've been about the film, I do see that there was a lot of thoughts given to a lot of these elements. And, and this is one where it's very communicative, kind of going beyond the blocking of it. This feels like one of the last calm kind of moments for quite a bit of the film and how just at the snap of a finger, it turns into just like this frenzied thing. And I think that the film does a good job of communicating that this is going to be very frenzied based off of how this scene kind of progresses from them sitting to Sam Neill kind of like terrorizing Anna into another room of the restaurant. He's like chasing her and he's just pushing through chairs and tables. One thing that I know that both of us are a fan of is, you know, you talked about motivated camera movement, motivated use of close-ups. This shot of Mark in the rocking chair, to me, is like one of my favorite close-ups in this movie as well. It's so communicative, and it tells you everything you need to know about where Mark is in this moment. What I think works really well with the close-ups is it is a combination of when, the performance, and then the technique behind it. There's two of them that I like, and they're back-to-back. They're having that fight in the apartment, and Anna hits Mark. Do it again. And then Mark turns and looks at Anna. The camera takes the perspective of Anna. So he basically looks directly into the lens. And then we flip and we have Anna do the same. It's moment because this is the first time we get a close-up. This is verging on extreme close-up. So it's the first time we get a close-up this tight. And it's happening after we've had, I guess, a series of long shots or medium long shots. You know, we're staying fairly wide. We're seeing a lot of the action. And then we cut into these, I guess, extreme close-ups. 
the contrast that's what speaks to me the performance behind both of the actors i mean i think you feel you know sort of the anger and maybe the betrayal in sam neill's performance and then you feel like the satisfaction in isabel ajani's performance it's sort of like a smirk that sort of comes across her face but she's also got such life in her eyes it's almost like she's sort of welling up in tears at the same time so it's this combination of an actor playing multiple emotions at once but then in terms of the technique it's this uh this very wide lens that is basically pushed right up into someone's face i'm gonna have a hard time articulating what it is but it creates a totally different feel than you know shooting from several feet away with a long lens there's something more i could say intimate but then there's also something that gives it this it feels more dangerous in this situation this feeling of not knowing what's about to happen next uh there's something just sort of off about the look and it's off because it's not the way you usually see it if you're going to shoot close up you use a longer lens because it is technically more flattering to the actor's face you know you have less barrel distortion it just looks better for close-ups also gives the actor room to move and stuff you don't have all these people right in your face and so by going against that tradition and, and using a different lens it creates a different feel and a different effect than what you're used to seeing i just think they're very expressive close-ups for lack of a better word i think they're packed with so much meaning that just sort of happens through a combination of things i kind of want to like touch on the performance that you mentioned while i find the film to be very loud and the performances to be very big. I do think that they're good performances. Like what you just highlighted is one of the reasons why I'm a fan of the performances here, because you can tell in both cases, because I kind of feel like maybe Sam Neill doesn't get as much credit for this film. But I think that there is a lot of just expressiveness and a lot of double meanings in, you know, facial expressions. I did want to talk about just the blocking in the apartment or the blocking we typically see during a lot of the fights. It's a lot of characters just moving. They're constantly moving with really nowhere to go. And this is obviously intentional because Zulowski described it as like the characters are like caged animals. They're moving but they're locked in this small apartment. They have this desire to move, to be free, to go somewhere, but they can't. And I think that really fits the film. I mean, it doesn't directly relate to this idea of disconnect, but I think it does relate to this idea of a couple wanting something better or something different or wanting even their relationship to be in a better place or a different place and not being able to ever sort of break out of this position that they're in or the situation that they're in, which I think is related to this idea of a couple that's clashing. I agree with that. And from a visual perspective and the visual language of the film, this is something that I think really does work with the earlier section of the film, you mentioned them wanting to move around. And I felt this element of like this like claustrophobic nature. 
you know, if you've ever shared space with another person in like a tiny or cramped apartment or anything like that, this is something that I think that people can relate to and can empathize with where you don't have the space to kind of just like distance yourself in those moments of conflict. So kind of going back to a point I made earlier, and I think that this is sort of like brings it full circle for me a little bit is there's like this codependent element where Anna keeps coming back to Mark. It very quickly devolves into like this frenzy and this like chaotic nature of it. And part of it is Mark pushing. But another element is, I think, just the space that they are in together. It's almost like reminding Anna and working against Anna to the point where it's like, I'm being suffocated. When you see Anna's apartment with her octopus lover. It's very spacious. You're showing these two different elements of her life with Mark, the claustrophobia, the the suffocating nature of it versus Anna independently or with her octopus lover, just sort of like the freedom there. And I, I find that just like incredibly fascinating and interesting, especially with the way that those two locations are shot and the scenes that kind of happen within them. Of all of the films that we have covered on this podcast since After Sun, this is not the episode that I would have expected us to reference. The the way that the film is cut together, there is, you know, this elliptical editing element to it where there's things that are clearly happening between scenes. We don't have a true sense of passage of time. I feel like there's elements to that where there's questions here about how much time has passed. And the example I can think of is when Mark comes home to Bob all by himself. By all accounts, it seems like Bob's been left alone for some time. Mark in the rocking chair. Questions about how long has Anna been gone. That all works like so well to kind of convey this dreamlike reality where Mark is just kind of existing without truly living, I guess I would refer to it as. It does feel like you're just seeing pieces of the day or the life, but then you do get moments where it feels like it slows down. And I don't think it technically does slow down, but I think it's the way it's edited. I think it's maybe the length of the scenes. It's moments with Mark with his son. And it certainly, I think, helps that the performance is a little bit quieter in these moments too, that it just gives it a different feeling. Editing structure feels like it's creating this idea of life just passing by and and maybe this concept of Mark just waiting for Anna to come back, but then periodically get moments of him with his son in which he actually feels somewhat like a normal guy as much as possible, you know, given the wild performance that Sam Neill's giving at times. And it feels like, okay, now he is maybe living, although he's still focused on something else. There is a distraction that is somewhat pulling him away from, you know, just focusing on his son. But it does feel like maybe this is a moment where he is living, I guess. That goes slightly beyond the editing, because I think there's a lot of elements that add to that. When it's Mark and Bob, those scenes you touched on, like, they feel like they're slowed down. But I also feel like those are given time to actually breathe. There's not, like, a ton of movement. We're not, like, cutting around back and forth a whole bunch. There's, like, a stillness to those. (laughs) 
the subway sequence in which Anna is having the miscarriage. It's one cut that bothers me. I think that is the worst cut of the entire movie because it feels like they didn't have a way to actually get her to that position other than we're just going to cut to her in that position. There is the sequence in which Anna has the quote-unquote miscarriage, and there's sort of two moments. It's the moment where she's beginning, you know, she's like sort of flailing around, and we have this handheld camera that is following her as she bangs up against the wall, she's on the ground, these very sort of uh, over-the-top expressive movements, and the camera's just following her. And then we have the moment where the blood and the pus starts leaking out of her. So she's like kneeling on the ground at that point. And it does feel like they cut and it's like, okay, now set up for the big effects shot. And it's just completely disconnected from everything that came before it. It's so jarring in a not effective way. The way Zulowski contradicts himself, I also contradict myself. I've expressed in the past that I like films where you can kind of see the fingerprints, you can kind of see the fact that it's handmade. It's not made by a computer, it's made by a person. But that being said, here's an example of it feels so much like you see the filmmaking process on screen. It's like you feel like the cutting of the camera and then the let's set up for the next setup. Let's get the effects in here and let's let's pump this blood and pus liquid out and I don't care for it. So I guess I'm contradicting myself in a way because I said I usually kind of like that kind of stuff, but here it, it just feels um, out of place. And, and what is it? I mean, it's like a, we're so immersed, you know, whether you actually are immersed as a viewer or not, it's like you are so immersed, or you're supposed to be so immersed as the viewer in this moment because it's this long extended take of her. And then they break that immersion with this one single cut. We're talking about a single cut in a film, but again, I, I think it's worth noting that it doesn't quite work, even though the film is not defined by this one cut. I guess what's, I guess in a way defeating about this one too is it's the most jarring, but then like what follows it is, I guess, supposed to be one of like the most visceral moments of the entire film. Out of the outrage of life, out of the difficulty of living, out of the frustrations of living, uh, instead of blah, blah, blahing about it, which she does in the film. There's a short film made by her lover, Heinrich, and, and she, she talks about it. But instead of talking, she does something in the subway. So she evacuates this, this, this evil, this, this, uh, like you can evacuate, I'm sorry, shit or, uh, or menstruation blood or whatever. She evacuates something she doesn't even know she has in herself. But once evacuated, be it a word, be it a, a, the words of Marx or, or Lenin or whatever, it becomes uh, flesh and blood. And it starts it, its own uh, independent life, and it kills, usually, not Marx, but it killed the guys of the French Revolution, of the Russian Revolution, the people who, who transformed blah blah into things, into physical reality. I dare you to give a, a coherent explanation of, of the thing.
But I dare you too, I dare myself to give a coherent explanation of evil. Is this the why it's on the video nasties list? Is this scene? Yeah. I mean, come on. What else? That or the octopus sex or both. Yeah. So we talked earlier about one of the camera movement techniques is they just lay dolly track and they essentially track laterally, you know, left to right, right to left. And they'll do this frequently when character is entering a building or entering a room or a character, you know, sort of stops in a doorway and is looking into another room. And the camera will go from right to left as an example. And this is, I guess, partly an editing discussion as well, is that we see these shots play out long enough that the characters actually go out of frame. These tracking shots continue past the characters before we cut. We don't cut at the moment they're about to go out of frame. We continue that movement and we photograph uh, the wall character out of frame. I think it's interesting. At moments, it feels like the camera trying to escape or get away from these characters or these situations and then being unable to do so. Camera about to escape and then being pulled back with a cut. And so we're stuck in this nightmare situation. The camera is stuck and, and therefore we as an audience are stuck. But I think it's just visually very interesting as well. I guess one of the things that I found most jarring early, I think it is one of the things that maybe also like pulled me out of the film is just how big the performances all are, especially Mark and Anna. They are just giving like huge, huge performances. I think overall they're good performances and I think that they show a chaotic and frenzied relationship, a relationship that is very strained, very difficult and combative. Yeah, they're probably the biggest performances of anything that we've covered to this point. Yeah, they are. And I think it's because I don't think either of us are normally fans of this type of performance. You probably are like, yeah, I'm still not. I'm still not either, but I do kind of think it works in this film. I would say it makes sense in this film. I don't know that I would say that it works, but it makes sense why. Well, I mean, I get the distinction, but I also do think that this film would be so less interesting if it had more natural nuanced performances. Interesting is good. You know, maybe it's not a great film, but sometimes interesting is maybe enough just because there's, especially now, so little of that. I hate to always t like act well, like- Well, Justin, back in my day. <laughs> Last episode, we had talked about Sam Neill holds a special place in your heart for being in a movie that, you know, you love and, and maybe got you into movies. I know he has a lot of interesting films early in his career. I, I don't know if you've seen a, a lot of those, but how does this film, this performance of his sort of, I guess, stack up to the film that you think of him in first? Or, you know, and is this affected what you think of his ability or his range as an actor? The movie that you allude to is Jurassic Park. And when I think about the films that inspired me or got me into film, that's the one. And to this day, I still adore it. I I've seen Sam Neill and other things. It's a guilty pleasure of mine, but I will say Event Horizon, I think in the Mouth of Madness, I, I think that there's like very similar performances kind of 
across the board with him in all three of these films. A film that I actually really like him in, and it's probably the last like Taika Waititi movie I actually cared about, Hunt for the Wilder People. I have seen a, a fair amount of range from him, but I think that this was the first time I've seen him do this character. This is something else entirely for him than what I've seen, and I thought it was great. It makes me actually want to go try to find other obscure Sam Neill movies just to see if he ever like duplicates or replicates this performance. I always thought that there was something a little unhinged in his performance in Jurassic Park, too. And it sort of comes out maybe when he's interacting with the kids and the justification is he like he just doesn't like kids, but it goes beyond like a disinterest or a dislike. It almost is like sinister. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, watching performances like this, it feels, I sort of see where that came from, in a way. He was uh, very constructive. I, uh, once I glimpsed at his script, it, uh, and the script was underlined, you know, with, with red and blue and green, etc., because he was building a part. And as films are not shot in order, so uh, we shot the end before the beginning, like every film does... He had to know exactly at what point of craziness, of madness, he is. And so he built these little charts. And uh, I'm very grateful for him because he, he, he's the glue holding the film together. You know, Isabella Gianni comes and goes and appears and disappears and makes, makes a big bang every time he, she appears. And, and in fact, in a way, it's easier but he had to be there all the time and and glue the pieces together only by by his being here all the time and i think he's made a very humble and very uh, uh basic and, and 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 wonderful job out of it Zulowski had at one point mentioned that sam neil and isabel ajani were the two people who had to essentially build a performance or create a performance or create a character. And he talked about like sort of this distinction between like what they were doing and what like all these smaller sort of parts were doing. The private investigators, the detectives, I think is the example he used. Like these are characters that are needed to tell the story. These are actors that I used. They come in and they kind of just say the lines out of necessity. But someone like a Sam Neill, as an example, he put in the work and, you know, needed to. This is what Zulowski needed from him, but he did the work. He put in the work to truly build an actual living, breathing character. As much as it is like a, a very over-the-top performance, I think he's still building a living, breathing, actual person underneath there. He's not just coming in and saying the lines. I want to kind of call out Isabel Ajani. I don't want to lose sight of her performance, and I do just want to give credit where credit is due, because it is a great performance. I would say that while I've been critical of how loud the performance is, there is a lot of range here, and there are scenes where she gives a quieter performance with Helen. There is like a lot of that screaming and yelling, but then you have just like this really sinister performance when we see her as like the ballet teacher. While that is like a much quieter section of her performance than anything else, I found that to be the most menacing from her of anything that she's doing. 
I also liked the quiet moments of her as Anna. There aren't a lot of them, but there are those moments where, you know, she's not saying anything. Some of them are close-ups. Some of them aren't. I do think she's communicating a lot with her body, her expression, her eyes. She's not given a lot of those moments because of the type of film this is. When she is given those moments, I think those really stand out. You're looking at me as if to tell me that I need you to fill me up as if I'm an empty space. Well, I love you too, but what makes me go on is to know he'll return and I'll make him suffer and, and I'll hurt him and I'm betraying him, but this brings me small rewards. I watched the Mondo Vision Blu-ray, which is a pretty cool set. It's a commentary, a documentary, 80-page book. That's the limited edition I'm talking about. I think that is officially out of print, although it is still available on their website. But there also is the special edition, which just has a smaller book. And because I'm obsessed with physical media, I don't know if anybody else cares, but this was just announced for a 4K. I'm contemplating getting that. I don't love this film, so I don't know why I'm even contemplating it, but, and I already have a version of it, so I don't know. <laughs> well, you need more physical media. I don't, though. A lot of the clips I played are from the commentary. I think it's a good commentary. Again, if you're looking to understand what the film means, he's not going to necessarily give you the answers. He's sort of a director who's like, figure it out on your own. He drops a few hints here and there, but in just in terms of his filmmaking philosophies or information about how certain things were done on this film, it's a good listen. And the booklet has a bunch of essays, which I didn't really get to for this episode, but it looks like some cool stuff. So if you love this film, obviously I recommend that, but um, sort of a light episode in terms of that stuff. I guess the last two have been. Where did you watch Possession, Joe? I went to all the usual suspects. I couldn't even rent it on Amazon. Even Amazon was like, you have to sign up for Shudder to watch this. I signed up for a free seven-day trial of Shudder, and then things came up, so we weren't able to record within those seven days. So I'm, I'm currently paying for another streaming service. But I, I will say, like... Shudder is kind of interesting to me, especially as we're entering the Halloween season. There is some stuff on there that I'm like, wow, I'll get around to this, hopefully. Yeah, I'll probably be holding on to Shudder through the end of October, at least. Joe, final thoughts or takeaways from your experience with Possession? There are things about this film that I think are really, really good. We've talked at length about the blocking. I think one of the things that this film does really well is utilizing confined spaces to create like claustrophobia, you know, especially in very difficult, tense moments. You know, I, I started this episode by talking about how I appreciate horror films that kind of have like some sort of deeper element, personal connections, things that we can connect to and relate to. And, and this one has it. It's just one that doesn't necessarily always work for me. I will acknowledge this is a film that I think I need to take some time and revisit within, you know, a couple months because we talked about this and we experienced this on our, our last episode, how taste changes over time. The next time I watch it, I'm hoping that I find more that I like than this initial viewing. But overall, this one just didn't work for me. Like I've already said, I do like the film, although it's not a film that I love. I have some issues 
with it, I kind of want to relate it to Synecdoche, New York, where I, I complain about Synecdoche, New York being about too many things. And this is a film that is not about as many things as that film is. But using that as an example to kind of say, like, you know, sometimes films are more effective when you kind of streamline them eliminate, you know, some of these things that they don't add clarity, they almost kind of make it more complicated or messy. And I feel like there's some elements in this film that do that. I'm not entirely surprised that you didn't like it, Joe. In terms of takeaways, I'd look at the way the film is blocked. The actors are blocked. And there's something to be said about maybe breaking naturalism or logic even to create really strong effects. Um, whatever that effect is, and sort of do things untraditionally, even maybe just in smaller moments, not to the degree that this film does. But I think of the cafe scene in which two characters who are there to see each other and are there to have a conversation with each other are sitting at different tables facing opposite directions. You know, maybe you can kind of incorporate that idea or that philosophy to your work and whether you take it to that degree or not, there's something to maybe uh, experiment with there. A friend director of mine noticed that an average European film uh, uses like four to 500 shots camera positions in a film and a big American film uses 5,000 because they have the money and the time to do it which doesn't mean that we wouldn't do that we would love to do that but we have nor the time nor the money so we try to synthesize things we try to to be uh, clean. What marks me uh, a lot these last years is that cinema became sound. Sound is much better than image. Sound is really attacking the nerves of the, the audience, not, not image. But for me, uh, cinema is image and sound comes uh, slightly second. Why don't you tell us what we will be talking about on our next episode? This actually has surprisingly been a, a difficult choice for me because there are several films that I, I kept going back and forth between. Ultimately, I settled on a film that I think has its fans, but I, I think it's actually kind of unpopular. From 2017, It Comes at Night, directed by Trey Edward Schultz. This is a film I have seen. Justin, you have not seen this one. That is correct. I've heard some good things and I've heard some bad things. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Not to give too much away for our next episode, but I do recall liking the film. We'll see if that kind of holds up. But I think that there's something else to discuss with this film, and that's going to just be sort of the backlash to it and uh, some of maybe the missteps of how the film was marketed, advertised. I want to thank everybody for listening to our discussion of 1981's Possession. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you'd like to support the show, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with other people that may appreciate it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, 
you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson, and Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of It Comes at Night. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know, oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut! And cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.